Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel. Honestly, you don't want to be taking generic legal advice from a YouTube channel or podcast in any event. On with the show. Nintendo sued. What you need to know from the Joy-Con Drift lawsuit. Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I am your host, Richard Hogue, managing partner of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And honestly, if you're not sick of virtual legality this week, I don't know when you'll ever be because I think we've done four, if not five episodes already. And I had not intended to do an episode today. But as it turns out, we've got a fairly significant lawsuit on our hands to go over, which if you follow virtual legality, you know, is something that we like to do. My background is, of course, as a corporate attorney. I'm not a litigator. I'm a transactional attorney. I help corporations work through their contracts, work through what it is they're going to put forth into the public eye with respect to their warranties and their intellectual property licenses and things of that nature. So we've talked a lot about that in virtual legality. But when it comes to actually getting sued on one of these things, that's not my purview. The practice of law is generally split into any number of practice areas, but the major split is between litigators on the one hand, those folks that you see in Law and Order or in other legal dramas, uh, and commercial transaction attorneys on the other hand, and that's the bucket in which I fall. And we you know, sit in front of our computer. We help people negotiate contracts. We do occasionally sit in nicely appointed rooms and shake hands over deals. Uh, but litigators have an entirely different uh, set of practices. And in this case, we're talking about a class action. So let's take a look at what Nintendo is currently facing. So yesterday, uh, this happened. I've pulled up an article from Go Nintendo, which appears to be the origin point for this story that says, Law Firm Opens Switch Joy-Con Drift Class Action Lawsuit Investigation. This is only yesterday, July 18th, 2019. It says, Talk of Switch Joy-Con Drift has been part of the discussion with fans since day one, but a recent thread on Reddit seems to have reignited the anger from fans all over. Some players have experienced Joy-Con Drift with their joysticks reading input that the player isn't doing, and others haven't had an issue. Those who suffer from the problem are looking for Nintendo to offer up a fix, and now a law firm is taking matters into its own hands. The law offices of Chemicals, Schwartz, Kreiner, and Donaldson Smith are looking to hear from Switch owners who have experienced Joy-Con Drift. If you're one of those people, they want you to fill out a form with all the details. If enough people pull together and there's sufficient evidence of a widespread issue, the law firm will consider filing a class action lawsuit. And that's absolutely what they said for their information inquiry yesterday. And this process of putting together a class action, if you're not familiar with it, is basically the law allows for groups of people that are similarly situated, which is a legal term of art, but it means that you're in the same position, that the court, if they decided that the company had done this particular individual wrong that's in front of them on the facts that are presented to them, that everybody else of a like position should get the same redress, should get the same compensation or whatever else they might otherwise get. And so in order to do that, in order to have a class action, you have to get your class certified, which is a large part of the document that we're going to see today, and we're going to skip most of it because that's a very technical legal question about whether the court has determined that all the people you are claiming belong to this class 
are so like situated that a court case with these main lead plaintiff would accurately essentially portray the situation and the damages that everybody else that you're claiming belongs in this class would also face. So they ask for these informational packets from people because they're looking for a good lead plaintiff. They're in general looking for a good sympathetic figure that's going to be the name on the lawsuit that has the most sympathetic facts surrounding them that makes the company look the worst so that they can be the lead and that they can get that class certified off of these major damages that this person has experienced and they can get the class action lawsuit put together. You see here that they reference if enough people get uh, pooled together and there's sufficient evidence of a widespread issue, the law firm will consider filing a class action lawsuit. I will tell you I would be willing to bet based on today's events, that this law firm was ready to file a class action lawsuit almost without a lead plaintiff at this point, based almost solely on what appears to be a Reddit thread talking about Joy-Con Drift. Because as of today, we get a press release from that very law firm that says, CSK&D files class action lawsuit against Nintendo of America, Inc. relating to Joy-Con drifting issues. CSKND has filed a class action lawsuit against Nintendo of America, Inc. for claims relating to alleged defects in the Joy-Con controllers that are part of Nintendo Switch gaming consoles. The complaint, filed in the United States District Court for the Western District of Washington, alleges that the joysticks on Joy-Con controllers are defective, leading users to experience drift issues. Specifically, the complaint alleges that the joystick on the Joy-Con controllers will automatically register movement, when the joystick is not being controlled by the user and interfere with gameplay. The complaint, filed on behalf of purchasers of Switches and Joy-Con controllers, brings claims under various consumer protection statutes as well as various warranty and common law claims. Which is good enough for a press release, but it's not good enough for you if you're listening to this or watching virtual legality on YouTube. So, that's a great abstract summary, but let's actually dive into the lawsuit because that is where the fun begins. So we've got here in front of us a class action complaint. We see the named plaintiff is a gentleman by the name of Ryan Diaz. And it says plaintiff Ryan Diaz individually and on behalf of all others similarly situated. That's the establishing of a class. That's what they're gonna try to say is we're trying to bring together all the people that otherwise are the same as Ryan Diaz. And in this case, when you're talking about a product's liability action, if they met their claims, if the court determined that they're right, that Nintendo did wrong, it's pretty easy to establish a class for the most part. You're basically trying to establish folks that bought this product within a certain window of time, usually. And those folks are entitled to whatever relief the court ultimately determines, or if there's a settlement, the settlement ultimately determines is entitled to all these other people that would be in this similarly situated class. So it's on his behalf and on behalf of all others similarly situated, brings this action against Nintendo. They say this is a class action brought against Nintendo. They give a brief description of what Nintendo did here. They say they manufactured, marketed, and sold the Switch and Joy-Con controllers. Yet notwithstanding its knowledge of a manufacturing defect, defendant failed to disclose the defect and routinely refuses to repair the joysticks without charge when the defect manifests and never disclosed this material defect to consumers. So there's a couple things here to unwind. They're claiming here, this paragraph, this section says it's a manufacturing defect. That's distinct from a design defect. A design defect says, hey, when you were planning this thing, it was planned to be wrong and it is in fact wrong. A manufacturing defect is different. And I think you probably have a good intuitive understanding of this, but a manufacturing defect says, hey, the plan is fine. 
Uh, but the way you put the thing together, the way you built your Joy-Con, the uh, ball bearings are too small, the screws are too loose, the rubber bands, whatever else goes into a Joy-Con is too something. And that means that as a result of your manufacturing processes, it doesn't work like it was supposed to. That's basically the claim. And then they go on further to say, as a result of defendants' unfair, deceptive, and or fraudulent business practices, which is big legal words to say, Nintendo's a bad actor, judge, you should do something about this. Owners of Switches, including plaintiff, have suffered an ascertainable loss of money and or property and or value. In other words, they bought a $40 Joy-Con. The Joy-Con doesn't work anymore. They lost the $40. Now, I'm going to back up a step here because class actions have their own issues. We're going to talk about in just a second. But one of the primary functions of a products liability class action is to prevent significant harm. For the most part, the law is most concerned with, it doesn't mean it's not concerned with what we're talking about here, but it's most concerned with injury and death. Did that swing set kill your toddler? Did those pills in that bottle, were they wrongly labeled and did they wind up poisoning your grandfather? That kind of thing. Does your Joy-Con occasionally move Link forward when you didn't intend him to move forward is pretty low on the law's priority list. Doesn't mean that this isn't legitimate. Doesn't mean that if Nintendo knowingly manufactured defective products that there shouldn't be redress for the consumer. It does mean that it's a harder road for the plaintiff's counsel, for the plaintiff's side of things to get to this point where you're claiming all these really bad things about Nintendo. And we're going to see in the fact patterns that they present that Nintendo doesn't really look like that bad of an actor even from the lead plaintiff's perspective. So that's going to be a problem in the weakness of their class and in the weakness of their claim overall. But even regardless of that, when you're talking about just getting the money back for a product that proves to be defective, that's a tougher claim than some of these other things that really do cause major injury and death. The last paragraph in this intro is, Accordingly, plaintiff brings this action to redress defendants' violations of California consumer fraud statutes, negligent misrepresentation, breach of implied warranty, unjust enrichment, and violations of the Federal Warranty Act and Californians Consumer Warranty Act. And I dropped the names out a little bit there. Plaintiffs seek monetary relief. Of course they do. Declaratory relief as to the party's rights under defendant's warranty. Essentially having the court say Nintendo owes a repair or a replacement over and above the 12 months, whatever it might be. And public injunctive relief that Nintendo has to stop doing the bad things that we're about to claim that they do. Jurisdiction and venue, we can skip. Jurisdiction's pretty easy here. They've got a defendant uh, in Washington. They've got a plaintiff in California. It's pretty easy to establish. But let's take a look at this lead plaintiff that they actually found. Because earlier in this video and podcast, we talked about the fact that class litigators are really looking for someone who is very, very sympathetic, who has a pattern of facts that the court could look at and say, wow, this corporation did this guy wrong. And I look at who they actually chose here, and I've got a couple of thoughts here, but let's take a look at what they actually describe as having happened. On July 21st, 2017, Mr. Diaz, the plaintiff, purchased a Nintendo Switch console and an extra pair of Joy-Con controllers. After about 11 months of use, the left joystick on the Joy-Con controllers that came with the console, which is important, began registering movement without being manually controlled or drifting. This resulted in the Joy-Con being unusable for general gameplay. So keep that in mind. He buys a console, not the extra Joy-Cons that he bought, but the Joy-Cons that came with the console. He feels that one of them becomes defective. One of them stops working the way it is supposed to at the 11-month mark. Keep that in mind. 
on or around July 5th, 2018, Mr. Diaz sent the defective Joy-Con controller to Nintendo for repair under the one-year warranty. Three months after receiving his refurbished Joy-Con controller. So let's back that up a step because they skip an important part here. He sends it back in July 5th. We don't know when Nintendo gets it back to him, but Nintendo takes it. There's no reference to Nintendo charging him for any of this. There's no reference to Nintendo not taking it back and giving him back what they describe here as a refurbished Joy-Con controller. So Nintendo took it back, got him back a controller, which by process of elimination would appear to have worked when it was initially sent back by Nintendo. Three months after he gets it back, in other words, probably about 15 months after he originally purchased it, but with 11 months plus three months, 14 months of good solid use out of those Joy-Cons, it stops working. It says he exhibits the drifting issue again. And uh, the left joystick on Mr. Diaz's extra set of Joy-Con controllers also began to exhibit the drifting issue about 13 months after use, but it was no longer under warranty, so Mr. Diaz did not send it in for an out-of-pocket repair. 13 months is an interesting notion there as well, because we will see that Nintendo actually differentiates between its warranty for your hardware system sales, which I would argue the Joy-Con that comes in the Switch box is part of, and accessory sales, which are have a shorter warranty in which extra Joy-Cons probably, they probably get that warranty. Um, so we'll take a look at those in just a second. Says both of Mr. Joy, uh, both of Mr. Joy-Cons, Mr. Diaz's sets of Joy-Con controllers were rendered unusable when the drifting occurred. As a result of the defect on both of his Joy-Con controllers, Mr. Diaz had to purchase two additional left-hand Joy-Con controllers for $45 each from Amazon on April 29th, 2019. Now, that's interesting in and of itself because that's almost a full year after he originally replaced it. So you wind up asking the question to yourself, okay, what was he doing with the Switch for that year? He wasn't playing it. Was it really unusable? He just stopped playing the Switch for a year. What happened? That's not part of the story here. But it, again, adds that little element of doubt as to this particular plaintiff and the story that he's telling. So just based on those facts, and this is the facts of the lead plaintiff. This is supposed to be the most sympathetic person this law firm could find. After 11 months, which is within warranty, we're going to take a look at that, he sends it back to Nintendo. Nintendo sends him back a new Joy-Con, a refurbished Joy-Con, free of charge. He gets three months more use out of that Joy-Con. So he gets 14 months of total use out of the Joy-Con that he purchased in the package on a 12-month warranty. He then doesn't have a Joy-Con that he feels is usable, but Nintendo, by all accounts, did what it was supposed to, and we have large periods of time where they don't establish exactly what was happening with his Switch, why he wouldn't ask for a replacement or otherwise cause issues for Nintendo earlier. And so I look at that and say, that's not a terribly sympathetic plaintiff. That's not a plaintiff that really puts you in the mood to say, wow, yeah, Nintendo really did this guy dirty, which is interesting because in almost all class actions that I've ever reviewed, the lead plaintiff is really sympathetic. They've done something. They have specific facts. The thing was broken on day two and Nintendo refused to fix it. That kind of thing that gets you in the court and say, wow, Nintendo's a bad guy here. And so we should really look at this class action carefully. This guy, Mr. Diaz, not that strong of a lead plaintiff. But what he is, what he does have as a strength is that he's a citizen of the state of California, as you see in line nine. And the state of California has very unique consumer protection laws. They are really unique across the United States, and I'm not barred in California. I'm a barred attorney in the state of Michigan, and I advise clients all the time when they're dealing with consumer protection laws in California, when they're dealing with labor relations laws in California, you need local counsel for that. Very often you need California counsel to talk about those very specific issues because they are broader. They do affect how a corporation can do business a little bit better. And so 
I think at the end of the day, when we talk about this issue, when we talk about uh, this potential claim against Nintendo, it's important to realize that this plaintiff was brought in specifically to bring California into play and specifically not because of this, the facts surrounding his purchase and the defects uh, regarding his Joy-Cons. Uh, so that's really my opinion on the plaintiff situation. We know who Nintendo is. We know what Joy-Cons are. If you follow virtual legality and you're a video gamer, they talk about Joy-Cons a little bit. Then they are trying to establish that Nintendo knew of a problem. And in order to establish that Nintendo knew of a problem, what they do is they go to a social media site, in this case, Reddit, and they pull up all these complaints about Joy-Con defect and drift. They say in item 26 here, Switch owners have publicly complained about the Joy-Con defect and drift. The following are some of the complaints submitted on forums and social media websites by Switch owners, which upon information and belief is monitored by defendant. So they've got a claim here. They've got a complaint from November 17th of 2017. So that's within the one-year window when the Switch released that says, I'm currently having problems with the left Joy-Con analog stick. Whenever I power on my left Joy-Con, the controller starts moving up even when I'm not touching it. They've got similar complaints in various time frames here. They've got June of 18, July of 18, December of 18, and again, December of 18. Which, again, I'm looking at this, and I'm looking at these complaints, and I say, okay, there's a couple of issues here. One, of course, you've got anonymous complaints from an online message board, so it's not the greatest evidence in and of itself. But the other thing that I see here is you don't have a number of complaints from the first year of service of the Nintendo Switch. You really only brought up one, November 17th, 2017. That's the only one here that I see that if you bought it at launch would have to come within the warranty period. And again, we're going to look at that warranty language in just a second when we get to their claims about the warranty. The rest, if they bought it at launch, they're all outside the warranty window. And that doesn't really help this particular class action complaint because they're going to make all these claims about breach of warranty because that's the claim that they can really make. And if you can't prove that this happened within the warranty time frame, you've got a real issue. You've got a real weakness with your complaint. Doesn't mean you couldn't get a sympathetic judge or jury to look at your manufacturing defect complaint, to look at a fraud complaint, to look at some other common law claims that you might otherwise make. It does mean it's a very tough road because you're outside of that warranty period. So I look at this and say, wow, you guys couldn't come up with people that had this issue, which is supposedly so prevalent that Nintendo knew of this defect that affects everybody and should have to pay money to everybody because it affects everybody. You couldn't come up with more complaints that even happened during the initial warranty period when we can be positive that they would have been talked about while the Joy-Cons were still under warranty. So again, I look at it and I say, wow, that's a weak set of claims that they are using to try to establish this. Then they have a number of other claims uh, in 2019. You see, they're, they're essentially organized uh, by date. And when we talk about warranties, when we talk about consumer products like Joy-Cons, uh, we're really talking about whether or not you should be able to go and get your money back, whether or not you should be able to force Nintendo to replace it for you. And I will tell you right now that for the most part, the law looks at a warranty and it says, if this is warranted to work for a set period of time, then you basically have the rights to it for that set period of time. And if it fails after that set period of time, you probably don't have a great claim. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, didn't we go over this in the last generation? Didn't the Microsoft Xbox 360 have the infamous red ring of death? And didn't that impact a lot of people outside of warranty? 
And I would tell you that you are absolutely right. That's a good memory on you, by the way. The Red Ring of Death did impact a lot of people outside of warranty. It was shortly after the warranty would have ended for most launch units of the 360. But Microsoft took it upon itself to essentially extend the warranty to apply to those and to replace the 360 in order to get it to function better for people. I actually had to replace my Xbox 360, I think it was four times until on the fourth return, they actually wound up giving me the newer model number and I can't remember the specifics there and it never broke again. But I absolutely had a launch unit 360. I had to replace it a number of times and Microsoft was very pro-consumer after the fact, right? The Red Ring of Death in and of itself was a problem. Whatever failure they had at Microsoft at that point in time, that wasn't terribly pro-consumer, but they did the right thing to correct it. They did the right thing to fix it, but it didn't necessarily have to be that way. Uh, depending on what would have happened, what discovery would have shown in any kind of class action lawsuit in that scenario, Microsoft could have potentially said, well, it happened outside of warranty and we're very sorry about that, but wouldn't you like to buy another 360? And we've, we've improved some things on it. And that might have been okay. Obviously, that's speculative towards that specific situation. But it does mean that the warranty really does matter. And the claims that they wind up bringing in this class action, which we're looking at count one right now, a violation of the Magnuson Moss Warranty Act, are mostly based around the concept of warranty. It says, hey, you know who Nintendo is, you know who our plaintiff is now. And it says, defendants express warranties are written warranties within the act. Defendant breached its express and written warranties as described in more detail above and below. And if you're following along, you know that they didn't really label a breach of the express warranties above. They really just described what would be compliance with a warranty and then a failed second unit. And then they say, without limitation, the Joy-Con controllers are defective and fail to operate as represented and warranted by defendant and replacement devices are also subject to the same defect. So let's take a look at what the warranty actually says. Uh, so I've pulled up here the Nintendo warranty coverage page on their customer service and this is a brief description of what it says, and then we're going to look at the actual warranty language itself. Nintendo systems carry a standard 12-month warranty. That's the big time frame for your hardware, your actual Switch system, and I would argue the Joy-Cons within the Switch box, which is one of the longest standard warranties in the video game industry. Games and accessories sold separately carry a three-month warranty. So that's if you're buying extra Joy-Cons, probably you've got a three-month warranty on that. The warranty covers any manufacturing or workmanship defects, and these will be repaired at no charge. Then we won't do certain things like you dropped your switch and some other stuff that we won't cover. But let's take a look at the specifics of the warranty. We get a little legalese language here. We've got something that you're probably used to seeing on the back of your instruction manuals or maybe on the label for your fan that you're putting in your office or what have you. And what I really want to focus on here is the limited hardware and game and accessory warranties. It says Nintendo of America warrants to the original purchaser that the hardware product shall be free from defects in material and workmanship. Okay, sounds good. For 12 months from the date of purchase. This is a very specific contractual obligation. They say, when you buy this thing, we promise it won't have a defect in it for 12 months. 12 months and one day, you don't get the same promise from us. We'll still run refurbishment and potentially replacement programs at Nintendo, but we can then charge you for it. We can then talk to you about how it happened, what you might be able to do to prevent it, what you might be able to do to fix it on your own, those kinds of things. They say, if a defect covered by this warranty occurs during this warranty period, Nintendo will repair or replace the defective hardware product or component free of charge. On limited game and accessory warranty, it says Nintendo warrants to the original purchaser from uh, that the product, games and accessories, shall be free from defects in material and workmanship 
for a period of three months from the date of purchase. If a defect covered by this warranty occurs during that period, they will repair or replace free of charge. That is the actual warranty that we're talking about. I also want to throw in one extra that we're going to get to in this claim, and that's implied warranties. It says, in addition, uh, this warranty shall not apply uh, for, oh, no, I've, I've highlighted the wrong section. It says, any applicable implied warranties, including warranties of merchantability and fitness for a particular purpose, are hereby limited in duration to the warranty periods described above, 12 or three months as applicable. That's the important part here, and we're going to talk about that. Uh, implied warranties are warranties that are a function of law. By operation of law, if you don't otherwise disclaim them, if you don't otherwise say, hey, these definitely don't apply to the product we're selling to you, the common law comes in and says, if you're selling a product to someone, there are certain implied warranties that just automatically attach. You're promising merchantability. You're promising that it's of a good enough state that you would ordinarily expect a merchant to sell something of this type to you. The other most notable implied warranty is usefulness for a particular purpose, which is to say, when I sell this thing to you and it's a Joy-Con and you think this Joy-Con is going to be able to be used to move Link through Breath of the Wild, it will in fact be able to do that. That there's an implied warranty that it will do what you think it's going to do and what we're implying that it will be able to do. And so that implied warranty does actually exist, which I'll be honest, I read this and I was a little bit surprised by. Most commercial contracts that I'm negotiating and drafting and entering into with people disclaim all implied warranties. And you can understand why if you're coming from the corporation side or from someone that really wants the contract within the four corners of the document, you don't want other kind of nebulous common law equitable principles to come in and change the rights and obligations that the two parties have agreed upon. So if you look at these terms and conditions on a different product, if you look at them on a different video game license that you might be able to pull up, you will usually see these entirely disclaimed. You will usually say, uh, nothing that we don't expressly warranty shall be included, including any implied warranties that might be implied by operation of law or otherwise, language to that effect. But Nintendo actually allows them. They just allow them for the same running time as their limited hardware and limited accessory warranties. So with that as the backdrop, we go back to the actual claim that this, uh, this law firm has made, and we see that Nintendo has a 12-month obligation that there is no defect. At the 11-month mark, their plaintiff asked for a refurb or asked for a repair. Nintendo got it, and they repaired it. And then three months later, it broke. That's not great. That's not ideal. Ideally, your Joy-Con would last forever, but that's not real reality for any kind of mechanical product. And so we look at this and we say, did Nintendo actually breach its warranty? They're using a lot of big language to suggest that they are really bad actors, that they defrauded folks, and that they should have known that this was happening and it was reckless to allow these products to go out for sale. But I don't know about you. My Joy-Cons work fine. And I have, I think, eight of them now because I like the different colors and my girls like to get them for me for birthday presents and I love them for it. But I think in all likelihood, the folks that are most likely to have a drift problem are ones that are using the controllers a lot more. Maybe they only have the one set and they're using it for 20,000 hours or so. I would be willing to bet that Nintendo manufacturing knows what the useful life in hours or in pushes of the joystick on a Joy-Con is. And they established their manufacturing processes to bring in a Joy-Con that had a useful life of between one and three years. That's kind of a normal process for a corporation to undertake. And does that mean that they are not selling high-end consumer goods that will last your entire lifetime? Sure it does. But does it mean that they are fraudsters? 
I'm not sure of that at all. And in fact, when you look at the warranty that they've got in place, it looks like they honored it with this particular plaintiff. And it looks like this isn't a terribly great claim other than the fact that drift is occurring at some percentage basis. I also look at this and say, when you look at the complaints from Reddit, when you look at what they're stating here, that everybody in this class of people that purchase Joy-Cons should get redress, should get money from Nintendo, I think you have to make a better claim that this is actually a really prevalent problem. I don't see that in what they've presented in this claim so far, and that's going to be an issue moving forward. Doesn't mean that it automatically gets the suit kicked out, but it does mean it's a problem for what they're claiming. The next one they say is the breach of express warranty, which is very similar to the federal claim. Uh, I believe they're bringing this under uh, what the Uniform Commercial Code and general common law principles. That It's a breach of contract, essentially, that they had this warranty and they're not doing what they were supposed to do with it. But again, it's raw assertions here. You've got the facts above. We know what happened. And then it just says defendant breached its warranties by selling to plaintiff and the class members the switches and Joy-Con controllers with a known defect. A known defect that doesn't appear to manifest in very many Joy-Con controllers. And if it manifests at all, manifests for this lead plaintiff at the 11-month and 13-month marks. That's not great. You don't want it to happen ever. But again, I look at this and say, wow, that's a really tough claim to make. And I, I don't see Nintendo as uh, the devil selling things that it knows to be faulty uh, to folks that it knows will be uh, otherwise injured or harmed by the sale. They then go on to say there's a breach of the implied warranty of merchantability. And again, this really ties to the connection to the, the express warranty concept. Did they breach the concepts within the 12-month period that they were selling something that was going to be merchantable? If they replaced it at the 11-month mark, I have a hard time making that claim. And if you get more than 14 months of use out of something with a 12-month warranty, both on the express side and on the implied side, I think you continue to have that issue. Unfortunately, for the claimant, for the plaintiff here, this is really the bulk of what this entire lawsuit comes down to, is these claims of breach. And they don't really have Nintendo acting as a particularly nefarious corporation to defend this. They then move on to California law. And I'm not going to go into this too deeply because, as I said at the start of this video and podcast, these are very specific. These are going to be covered a lot by California uh, case law, by California decisions, potentially uh, attorney general letters uh, of advice to lawyers operating in the space. But we can talk about what is even claimed here and say, does that make sense to us from afar? Defendant engaged in unfair and deceptive acts in violation of this California law by the practices described above and by knowingly and intentionally concealing from plaintiff and the subclass members that the switches and Joy-Con controllers suffer from the joystick defect. So this is really a fraud claim. You're talking about knowing and intentionally hiding a defect that you know is going to cause these people problems. And so this is even harder to bring a claim against than just a mere breach of warranty. You actually have to show, you have to go into discovery and you have to prove to the court that Nintendo knew something was wrong, knew it would harm these folks, and knowingly and intentionally hid that in order to sell the product that they were going to put forth into the marketplace. That is a very high standard. It's a very tough thing to do. Is it impossible? I couldn't say. I don't work at Nintendo. Could you get into Discovery? And could you get into the emails of the executives at Nintendo of America? And could there be an email that says, hey, let's defraud everybody by hiding this design defect. Go, Drift, go. Yes, that could exist. Do I have my doubts about that? Of course I do. I think it's very unlikely that Nintendo acted in a nefarious manner to hide a defect of this type. I think, in all honesty, what they were doing is they were building a, a cheap consumer-grade level good uh, in order to get that price down on the Switch uh, and 
if Nintendo were to come out and to defend their actions, they would say, this was the way we could bring it in at $40. Could we make a $150 version of this? Absolutely. But if we look at our friends at Microsoft, do their Xbox One controllers break more often than their Xbox Elite controllers? Yeah, absolutely they do, because the Xbox Elite has uh, much higher grade components in the controller, and you pay for it. You pay hundreds of dollars for it. And that's the way consumer products work, is that if you want to have that long life good, if you want to have that higher quality good, you do pay more for it. Uh, And so the Joy-Cons that exist right now are built to live in a $250 or $350 package with the Switch. And that was the design decision, sure, but they all fall outside the warranty when they become defective. And if they don't, we replace them. And it's hard to see Nintendo as a bad actor for that. Violations of the California unfair competition law we've talked about in previous virtual legalities, but this is a California law that generally attaches to another California law when you've done something bad. So in this case, it kind of attaches to the fact that, hey, if you did defraud people, that's also unfair competition, that it's unfair to compete with other California product providers if you're also defrauding your consumers. And so California law often attaches an unfair competition law whenever you're bringing a kind of consumer-directed California law complaint. Then we have the California Warranty Act, which I think sits in the same fashion as the Federal Warranty Act to say if there's a breach of a warranty, it's not just a contract claim that the consumer has against you. It's also a breach of this specific statute in California. And it's really because of all these extra California acts and the fact that they can create a California subclass that could potentially get better Uh, treatment under the law that I really think Mr. Diaz was chosen as the lead plaintiff because his story isn't that compelling. Then we start getting into the equitable and common law issues, which is essentially just saying, hey, court, we know there's not a statute on the books here, but if Nintendo did defraud its consumers, if it did commit unfair competition, if it did do anything else bad that you might find, then, hey, they were unjustly enriched. We, as people of the state of California or people of the United States or people of the state of Washington, we don't like our corporations to get money, to get profits by doing bad things. And so we've got these common law claims that we can make, like unjust enrichment and uh, other things of that nature. They also ask for declaratory relief. They say pleading in the alternative. If, In essence, if you're not going to give us money, at least make Nintendo repair and replace these things. At least make Nintendo stop selling the current design of the Joy-Cons, things of that nature. And maybe we don't need the money uh, if it comes down to it. And then you get to the end where they say, hey, we'd really love that uh, equitable relief. We'd really love the cost, restitutions, damages, including punitive damages. Please punish them. They're bad actors and other things of that nature, as well as certifying the class that everybody that bought a Joy-Con probably within a certain time period should be a part of this class. And if we've got a big class, we can get a big damage pile from Nintendo. And out of that big damage pile or even out of that leverage, we can make ourselves a lot of money. And that's really what it comes down to from a class action perspective. As you heard at the top of this video and podcast, you know I'm a corporate attorney, so I'm wearing my bias on my sleeve here. But as a corporate attorney, I have gotten the shakedown letters from people bringing or threatening to bring a class action lawsuit against some of my clients. And I can tell you a lot of the times they're specious. A lot of the times they are plaintiff's counsel looking for a payday. And unfortunately, that is my opinion over a large spectrum of class action lawsuits in the United States. And it's an unfortunate fact because I do think there is a need to protect consumers from corporations that are doing really, really bad things. But what we've got is a system right now which essentially incentivizes specific plaintiff's class action boutiques 
to bring claims against corporations that they think can defeat a summary dismissal at the court level and then essentially go and for the most part seek settlement. I've brought up an article here from Forbes from a number of years back from 2013 that says study shows consumer class action lawyers earn millions clients little. You can read this for yourself. There are some questions of bias as well here. For the most part, the studies are brought by things like uh, the Consumers Bureau and things like the Defense Council for Corporations. But even there, they found very specific things, which is they found that in five of six cases where settlement distribution data was actually available, the percentage of class members who actually got money ranged from a high of 12% down to six, I don't know what that is, billionths of a percent. Uh, with the sixth being almost 100%, but related to an actual Madoff scam, Bernie Madoff, if you recall that name. And I don't want to make any judgments for you on this virtual legality. You can bring those judgments up yourself. And certainly I think protection is important, but I don't know that class action law shouldn't also seek even more reform than it got earlier this decade and even in the decade before it, uh, because I don't know that this bounty system is terribly useful to the consumers, uh, which is a long way of saying if this winds up getting settled, and I would probably bet that it will, it, because Nintendo is bringing out a new system over the holidays. They're bringing out a new system of which this particular problem, a joystick issue, now that the Joy-Cons are going to be attached to the device on the Switch Lite, this particular issue would be one of particular consideration for purchasers of the Switch Lite at Christmas. Nintendo is going to want this to go away. Uh, and so I would suspect that if they can get past kind of summary dismissal at the court level, then Nintendo is ultimately going to settle this because most of these wind up in settlement. And really the reason why most plaintiffs don't get a lot of money from it is because most of the class, everybody but Mr. Ryan Diaz, is what we would call an absent plaintiff. They're not going to be part of the actual lawsuit. They would essentially just get you know the check for 37 cents or what have you, a new Joy-Con potentially in seven years or what 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 would be the redress at the end of the court case, and they won't otherwise get any money while the lawyers collect whatever it is that they collect, 30% of the total cash payout uh, that Nintendo pays to the entire class. Uh, and while I think Joy-Con Drift, for those that are experiencing it, is undoubtedly frustrating uh, and uh, not something that you necessarily think very fond thoughts of Nintendo about, I'm not sure that it rises to the level of really supporting a class action, which is one, very unlikely to really bring many changes to the design or functionality of the Switch, and two, very unlikely to bring you any specific uh, equitable relief, whether that's in a replacement of your Joy-Con or financial relief. I could be wrong on that. God knows I've been wrong before, and I will be wrong again. Uh, but those are my two cents on this brand new claim that has been brought against Nintendo. Uh, please leave your comments in the description if you've got any comments of your own. If you think this is a great idea that a class action is being brought against Nintendo. If you think it's a kind of a bad idea. Or if you have any comments on my opinions as to what was presented in the fact pattern. Or the claims that this particular law firm and plaintiff are trying to make. Please do leave those comments. I love having them. I love having those discussions even if you think I'm an idiot. Or you otherwise think uh, that my analysis isn't a great one. Otherwise, if you like this video, please do like, please subscribe to this channel. We are doing this all the time. We've done it a bunch of times this week already. We talked about the FaceApp terms and conditions, which were in the Washington Post and the LA Times and the New York Times and everywhere else yesterday. We talked about whether Ubisoft is exploiting its artists by having uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's hit record only give $20,000 for 10 songs from a whole community of people that would be submitting songs. We talked about whether Kickstarter is violating its own terms and conditions when it kicked off a fully funded campaign with a very ambiguous 
ambiguous statement. And many, many, many more videos, including postmortems on Game of Thrones and everything else you might expect from a law firm's YouTube channel. Again, if you like this, like, please subscribe. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it on a podcast, thank you so much for listening. Please do review it on that podcast service that you listen to it on that does a great deal of help in spreading the word about virtual legality. And on both sides, podcast and video, please do share it around with anyone you might think would be interested in this video or podcast series because I can't get everywhere on the internet and I love having those thoughts shared, having new people come in and having those discussions with them. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality.